this is, as Nicholas says, part of a, my, my monograph, um, and it, it's a, essentially a, a 16,000 word chapter which I've shrunk to 6,000 words, so I'm conscious that there may be um, uh, some uh, scant argumentation in places, uh, but in, in my mind it's all really dense and, and complete, so um, uh, apologies if I, if I seem to be skipping over things quickly. Um, <clears throat> we're used to thinking about the death of Little Nell as a means of establishing aesthetic and cultural differences between contiguous generations. Indeed, the novel's enduring critical and cultural significance owes much to its usefulness in precisely this respect. Generations of readers and critics have been able to identify a self-defining otherness, not only in the sentimentality of the novel itself, but also in its rich cultural afterlife. <clears throat> the familiar accounts of uh, rigid Victorian patriarchs rendered helpless by tears and those clamouring New Yorkers who are supposed to have stood on the docks quizzing inbound voyagers about Nell's fate. Oscar Wilde's ubiquitous quip about needing a heart of stone not to laugh at Nell's death helped distance his generation of aesthetes from their soppy stern mid-century parents. Aldous Huxley, who said the novel was, quote, distressing in its ineptitude and vulgar sentimentality, clearly uses it to signal a fundamental difference between 19th century literary sensibilities shaped by uh, those Victorian triple-decker novels and sensibility forged in the era of high modernism. Uh, that sort of high-handed critical dismissal is a, a cheap and easy manoeuvre, I think. One, um, uh, we might even call it a cheap shot, which is taken by the present at the expense of a past generation whose aesthetic judgments were formed in and by quite different social and critical paradigms. It's not so cheap, however, that I'm going to pass up the opportunity to do it myself. Um, I'd hate you to think that I felt that it was beneath me somehow, that I really don't. Um, and my, my cheap shot um, is not against Dickens himself, it's against um, another critic um, of, of, a, of, a, of a suitably distant generation, I think. Um, but I want, first of all, so that we all know roughly the kind of um, representation of death that I'm talking about, we should look at a, a notorious passage from um, chapter 53 of uh, The Old Curiosity Shop. This takes place when Nell first arrives in the rural village where she will you know, spoiler alert, uh, eventually die, um, and uh, it takes place in the graveyard where she will be buried. <clears throat> um, some young children sported among the tombs and hid from each other with laughing faces. They had an infant with them and had laid it down asleep upon a child's grave in a little bed of leaves. It was a new grave, the resting place perhaps of some little creature who, meek and patient in its illness, had often sat and watched them and now seemed to their minds scarcely changed. She drew near and asked one of them whose grave it was. The child answered that that was not its name. It was a garden, his brother's. It was greener, he said, than all the other gardens, and the birds loved it better because he had been used to feed them. When he had done speaking, he looked at her with a smile, and kneeling down and nestling for a moment with his cheek against the turf, bounded merrily away. Now, John Carey, long ago, cited this churchyard scene as evidence of what he saw as a catastrophic failure of Dickens' writing. <clears throat> it's evident, he wrote, that something has horribly corroded Dickens' intelligence here. Partly, no doubt, we may put it down to the influence of Wordsworth's foolish verses and lyrical ballads entitled We Are Seven, which Dickens is known to have admired. But the trouble lies deeper. Dickens is pretending that children are small adults. They still believe the things which adults would find it comforting to believe if only they could bring themselves 
to be fatuous. Um, such a curt dismissal of both We Are Seven and Dickens' intelligence has not aged well, I think, particularly in the light of more recent scholarship which has recuperated sentimentalism as a distinctive aesthetic mode with an explicable and intellectually fascinating appeal to Victorian readers. Carey, um, still labouring in 1973, admittedly I wasn't born yet, so um, uh, it is a long time ago, but he was still labouring, I think, under the influence of, of Liebes and new criticism, um, fails to historicise the passage adequately and throws the baby out of the bathwater. <clears throat> this paper is an attempt uh, to add to the, the recuperative critical work that's been done recently on the Old Curiosity Shop and its sentimental mode of depicting death. Um, and it, it tries to make a contribution by contextualising this passage in particular um, about the tombstones, but, but the whole treatment of, of death here. Um, among a cluster of other early 19th century texts to which it seems to me to be clearly related. These texts were drawn firstly from the burial reform movement, which was in, in full swing um, around the time that Dickens published the novel. And um, uh, secondly, uh, they're drawn from um, education, the writings of educational theorists in the first half of the 19th century. The texts all share um, an assumption um, that human responses to death, uh, as, as they've been traditionally conceived, were not innate. Um, that traditional responses to death um, were actually cu cultural constructs, the results of eight centuries of religious art and funerary sculpture in which death had been represented as something fearful, terrifying or disgusting. Inspired alike by bogus psychological theories and the period's reformist energy, they argued firstly that attitudes to death could be transformed and secondly that the immense affective power generated by thoughts of the dead could be harnessed for the wider social good. Neither enslaved <clears throat> by the need to remember nor guilty for their habits of forgetting, the living could henceforth view mortality without anxiety. Society in turn would be kinder, healthier and more productive. Individuals and the economy that depended upon their labour would both profit from the change. These texts also share a belief that the human mind was plastic, an increasingly common view in a period in which theories of mental association, which will play a significant role in this paper, um, emerged as the, the new psychological orthodoxy. In a recent book on association psychology and memory in Dickens' fiction, Alison Winter describes how the Victorians sought to delineate, quote, the relations among politics, social conditions and human nature by thinking about thinking. Winter's phrase um, captures the intense self-consciousness and psychological reflexivity that characterise early 19th century investigations into the structure and functioning of the mind. In this paper, I want to alter Winter's focus somewhat by showing how early 19th century writers, including Dickens, tried to engineer social change by altering the dead's psychological presence in the minds of the living. It isn't just 19th century thinking about thinking that concerns me here, but rather it's thinking about thinking about the dead. <clears throat> Dickens revealed his own thoughts on thinking about the dead in a speech he made in Edinburgh in June 1841, where he assures his audience that he is, quote, anxious and glad to have an opportunity of talking to him about his most recent novel, The Old Curiosity Shop, and particularly about the death of its little heroine, Nell Trent. Dickens claimed that he had been determined not to swerve from his original plan, which was that Nell should die 
despite, quote, the daily letters of remonstrance he received from readers, each begging him to spare her life. He defends his resistance to their pleas by explaining that his novel had a more significant purpose. I thought what a good thing it would be if, in my little work of pleasant amusement, I thought what a good thing it would be if, in my little work of pleasant amusement, I could substitute a garland of fresh flowers for the sculptured horrors that disgrace the tomb. It's an image that draws upon the traditions of poetic elegy, um, where poets have consistently figured textual representations of grief as floral tributes designed to disguise the corpse of the elegiac subject. Like Milton, for example, who wished to, quote, strew the laureate hearse where licid lies through writing Lycidas, Dickens hopes his flowers will beautify death and thus soften its impact, that they will adorn and hide, quote, the coming bulk of death, as Shelley puts it in Adonais. It's an ambitious claim for a young writer, and particularly one who was not writing in the high-minded elegiac tradition, but was rather peddling the pleasant amusement of fiction in weekly or monthly instalments, a form that had yet to establish its cultural authority. Yet, Dickens himself seems tentatively optimistic about fiction's potential to shape social or to shape individual psychology and to affect social change among both communities of readers and individuals. He continues, if I have put into my book anything which can fill the young mind with better thoughts of death or soften the grief of older hearts, I shall consider it as something achieved, something which I should be glad to look back upon in afterlife. Dickens's confidence was actually underpinned by um, a detailed knowledge of contemporary psychological theories, as uh, recent critics, including Alison Winter and Tyson Stolt, have shown. Um, he also had first-hand and very recent experience of the psychological damage that could be wreaked by morbid thoughts of death, having experienced a year of traumatic grief after the death of his sister-in-law, Mary Hogarth, which had taken place four years earlier in 1837. His desire to communicate and transmit better thoughts of death therefore had a deep personal resonance. Better though than what? Because implicit in this narrative of psychological improvement lies a dissatisfaction with current modes of thinking about death, which, according to the substitutive logic of his metaphor, have been engendered by, quote, the sculptured horrors that disgrace the tomb. Now this is a phrase which might either be read literally as a reference to the carved skulls and um, dancing skeletons that uh, characterise pre-Victorian funerary architecture, or it, it might be taken more loosely as a figure for traditional modes of representing death, the gloomy literary equivalent perhaps to the fresh flowers of his own cultural productions. And you might think here of um, early Romantic, late 18th century poetry like the graveyard poets, where um, uh, everything, any, any mention of, of the tomb was accompanied by horror and um, uh, dark thoughts. It's a claim that's worth considering in more detail, I think, as it relies upon the existence of a causal link between artistic representations of death and death's psychological presence. How we think of death, Dickens claims, depends upon what we hear, read and see of it. It's a suggestion that has been made possible by early 19th century theorisations of the link between the data that's gathered by the senses and stored in the memory and the psychological structures that govern mental processes. Prior to the early decades of the 19th century, attitudes to death and the dead had typically, not, not exclusively, but typically been seen as innate. 
with most people writing on the uh, most writing on the subject is eager to assert continuities in how um, humans of um, all periods and all races and all cultures think about death. Um, Wordsworth, for example, begins the first of his essays upon epitaphs in 1810 with an assertion that everyone from, quote, the earliest savage tribes unacquainted with letters, end quote, to his contemporaries in modern-day England, possessed an identical desire to mark gravesites because they shared um, a consciousness of a principle of immortality. And Dickens said this had been implanted within them, that, that there was a divinely inspired or divinely implanted innate sense of immortality which governed our attitudes to the dead. Um, he supports this with a long list of classical and biblical examples, um, and this is a, a common recurring trope in, in almost all writing about the dead in this period. Um, the, 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 only, um, the, the, only, the only example that people commonly cite uh, as, as kind of the example that proves the rule really is Diogenes, who of course didn't mind about his body, told his friends to, not to bury himself and to, to cast his body to the dogs. The fact that he's the only, the only um, classical figure that ever gets mentioned um, is used to reinforce the, this sense of commonality across the centuries. So Dickens' claim that thoughts of death were linked to culture rather than instinct illustrates the presence of a new current of thought, one that depends upon the widespread acceptance of the principles of association psychology. Now, <clears throat> I'll, I'll give you a very brief guide to um, association psychology or an explanation of it as I understand it. Theories of psychological association um, in the English tradition can be traced back to John Locke, although they, they go much further back into classical thought. Um, but they owed their 19th century influence to the development of Locke's ideas by David Hume and particularly David Hartley in the mid-18th century. Rejecting both Platonic and Cartesian innatism by arguing that the infant mind was a tabula rasa, a blank slate, associationist psychology argued that all mental life, all thought, develops not from any divine implantation of beliefs and ideas, but from the sum of an individual's sensory experiences. <clears throat> Hartley, for example, theorised that each sense impression does not remain isolated once it's been processed by the mind, but, but then becomes connected to others through an automatic process of association, hence the name. These clusters are then organised into sequences within the mind, trains of thought, to use Locke's famous term, uh, which are then communicated um, through the tissues of the nervous system to, to, um, to the brain, to the mind. Our subjectivity is thus defined and circumscribed by what we've perceived through our senses at crucial moments in our life. Dickens's Edinburgh speech suggests not only that he was aware of association psychology, which we, which we know, but also that he was seeking ways to exploit its reformist potential through his writing. If Dickens is to be believed, he intended the old curiosity shop to engineer in the minds of its younger readers a more modern and less harmful way of thinking about the dead. <clears throat> the suggestion that attitudes to death were cultural constructs had been popularised about 20 years before um, Dickens gave this speech by Isaac Disraeli, Benjamin Disraeli's essayist father. He tackled the subject in the second series of his popular um, Curiosities of Literature in 1823. These are kind of compendia of essays um, and, and short um, uh, pieces of prose writing. Two essays in the collection trace the widespread fear of death, um, not to any innate fear of mortality, but to the psychological effect of carved imagery in art and sculpture. 
Dzerzhina begins from the widely held belief, and in fact, wholly erroneous belief, um, that, that, quote, the ancient contemplated death without terror and met it with indifference. He then catalogues the differences in how death was represented in uh, Christian and classical art. Um, and he suggests that the ancients only allegorized or symbolized death without ever explicitly representing or personifying it in human form. Um, his claim is that they took such care over its depiction that, quote, we have not discovered a single revolting image of this nature in all the works of antiquity. Um, and by this nature, he means a skeleton or a skull. Uh, <clears throat> to conceal its deformity to the eye as well as to elude its suggestion to the mind seems to have been a universal feeling. This resistance to associating death with terror was transformed, Disraeli claims, after Christianity's arrival in Europe, uh, when um, priests and religious artists began to represent death in the form of a skeleton. And he traces that he the essay ends up with a discussion of Holbein's Dance of Death, hence the image on the right. The suggest, um, it was at this period, Disraeli writes, that the population first beheld the grave yawn, and death in the Gothic form of a gaunt anatomy parading through the universe. The people were frightened as they viewed everywhere hung before their eyes, in the twilight of their cathedrals and their pale cloisters, the most revolting emblems of death. Disraeli not only suggests that the public mind of Western Europe was not naturally appalled by thoughts of death, but he also um, claims that this new mode of thinking about the dead body was a self-conscious attempt to reshape attitudes to mortality for propagandist purposes, so that they might be used by the church um, to instill religious terror. <clears throat> Monks and priests had deliberately polluted, Disraeli's word, the hitherto pristine public mind with, quote, the contents of a charnel house. Their aim was to engender a fear of death, in their parishioners which would benefit the church by allowing it to tighten its hold on both their imaginations and their purses. Dickens almost certainly knew Disraeli's essays that are listed in a census of his library that was taken in 1844, three years after he makes this speech, and he shares his belief in a causal link between the formation of individual attitudes to death and more common and popular cultural representations of the dead. <coughs> his quote, sculptured horrors, moreover, seem closely related to what uh, Disraeli calls the horrors of the charnel house, or the horrors of the grave, or the horrors with which, with, with which Christianity uh, was disguised. D uh, Disraeli repeatedly focuses on horrors, and I think Dickens picks up this key word. <clears throat> Yet Dickens's claim that better thoughts of the dead were not only possible, but that they could be uh, engendered through the reading of fiction, goes far beyond anything that was suggested by Disraeli, who offers no suggestion, no hint that the imagination's pre-Christian purity might be restored. Dickens' reformist optimism does, however, echo that which can be found in the work of social and sanitary reformers, who took up Disraeli's speculations in the 1830s and used them to argue for a transformation in the most visible source of gloomy and horrific death imagery, the urban burial ground. Um, the, I've, I've been working through my PhD and then work, writing this book, I've been working on this topic for about 10 years, and there are moments where <coughs> um, I realise that not everybody has spent years and years reading about dead bodies, so um, if I assume that you all know about the history of 19th century graveyards, 
Um, forgive me. It, these moments often happen at dinner parties, but I realise I'm talking about corpse gas or something, and it was slightly stunned silence. Um, city graveyards, though, I, I think the, the, the common sense of, of London's graveyards being very bad at this, at this point is, is, should be well enough known that, that I can skip over it. City graveyards, struggling to cope with the huge influx of new urban dwellers, have become notorious for their squalor in the manner in which dead and decomposing bodies have been crammed into every square, every conceivable square foot of ground. Um, two separate, indeed sometimes bitterly antagonistic, responses to the scandalous condition of these burial grounds emerged in the 1830s and 1840s. Both of these um, discourses recognised Israeli's assertion that there was a link between modes of thinking about the dead and the cultural representation of death. <clears throat> um, the first of these is, is the uh, movement for the establishment of commercial garden cemeteries in the 1830s and, and early 1840s. These were made legal in 1832. Um, the second of them is the campaign for sanitary and burial reform, and the two are quite distinct. Research on burial reform discourse on both of these, these uh, areas of burial reform discourse typically focuses on its obsession with the body, both the permeable living body, endlessly susceptible to miasmatic infection, and the dead body whose noxious emissions and effluvia were believed to be poisoning London's air and water supply. Yet these texts are also, it turns out, psychologically fascinating, as advocates for reform draw um, widely upon associationist theories to explain and justify their campaigns, and claim that burial reform would transform the way in which urban dwellers, and particularly the young, thought about the dead. <clears throat> Make death more visually appealing, these writers argued, and it can be transformed um, from a source of terror to a source of pleasure and social utility. Begin with, with garden cemeteries, um, places like Kensal Green, Highgate, Abney Park. Um, supporters of these cemeteries argued that their construction would help cleanse the store of images associated with death in the public mind by removing the source of horrific sensory data, the, the sorts of graveyards that Dickens would later describe in Bleak House, for example, where you can see bones sticking up. Um, these these are, are, are the sorts of things they have in, in their sites. <clears throat> One of the very first texts to argue in favour of a garden cemetery is typical of much of what followed. In a book called Necropolis Glasguensis, uh, John Strang uses the psychology of association to argue for the value of a new landscape cemetery in Glasgow. <clears throat> As things stand, Strang argues, the dead are, quote, associated not with the peaceful repose and the touching beauties of nature, but with the frightful horrors of the charnel house and the cold productions of art. These horrors are unavoidable, aggressive, and pose a constant threat to the sanctity of an individual's psyche. Graveyards with crypts, for example, generate an image of physical dissolution, which, Strang says, quote, forcibly presses itself on the mind. Uh, while, quote, the only associations we have with death are such as the imagination shrinks from contemplating. You'll note the, the emphasis on association there. <clears throat> John Claudius Loudon, another um, uh, writer on burial, who was perhaps the most influential cemetery designer of the mid-Victorian period, acknowledges in his guide to cemetery design that urban burial grounds are, quote, shunned and avoided because the associations which are generally attached to them are gloomy and terrific associations, once again. Strang quotes extensively from Disraeli, in fact, to support his claim that these associations are necessary, that they resulted from the monkish, from what he says as the, quote, monkish artifice 
of associating man's latter end with all that was disgusting and horrible. The church played on man's imagination to create monsters, which a garden cemetery, quote, the sworn foe to preternatural fear and superstition, is carefully designed to banish. Beneath the shade of a spreading tree, Strang writes, amid the fragrance of the bammy flower, surrounded on every hand with the noble works of art, the imagination is robbed of its gloomy horrors. The wildest fancy is freed from its debasing fears. So if the cemetery could remove the psychological association between death and terror, then its significance would be transformed. What had hitherto been a dully functional space, a boneyard, would become a facility that was, quote, not only beneficial to public morals and to the improvement of manners, but it would also result in the extension of virtuous and generous feelings throughout society. <clears throat> the American Supreme Court Justice Joseph Story, who believed that the doctrine of association had been demonstrated as one of the, quote, laws of the mind, advanced a similar case at the consecration of Mount Auburn Cemetery in New York in September 1831. This speech was widely disseminated among burial reformers in Britain um, in the 1830s. Uh, and it supports the idea that modes of thinking about the dead are culturally constructed rather than innately determined. Why, he asks, if, quote, a tender regard for the dead be so universal, do we not dispel from it that unlovely, that unlovely gloom from which our hearts turn as from a darkness that ensnares and a horror that appalls our thoughts? He too quotes Disraeli, but pushes the logic of his argument further by proposing that our mode of thinking about the dead can be harnessed for socially beneficial ends. Man, he writes, is the creature of associations and excitements. Making the pathways to the grave more cheerful will help the living to connect their reverence for the dead indissolubly with associations which charm us in nature and engross us in art. Death can not only have negative associations with skulls, skeletons, and so on, but it can have positive associations which, which will prove individually and uh, socially transformative. <clears throat> These associations can not only inspire mourners to a renewed sense of religious devotion based on an apprehension of divine beauty rather than a sense of mortal terror, but can also be enlisted in the cause of human improvement. Thinking about the dead thus ceases to be something which terrifies and appalls the living and becomes instead, quote, an instrument to elevate ambition, to stimulate genius and to dignify learning, end quote, through the reforming power of associative psychology. Garden centuries thus marketed themselves not only as attractive and exclusive spaces in which to bury and visit the dead, but as tools for psychological and social reform and the means by which age-old superstitions, fears and anxieties could be consigned to the past. Not everyone was so keen. The sanitary reformer Edwin Chadwick, in his uh, monumental 1843 supplementary report on the practice of interment in towns, called for Kensal Green and the rest of the garden cemeteries to be nationalised and closed. They would be replaced, if Chadwick got his way, by new national cemeteries which would be placed way beyond the, the city limits. Yet although Chadwick and the garden cemetery advocates disagreed about the solution to the problems associated with urban burial, they shared a belief that association psychology offered the best justification for the form. When Chadwick writes that, quote, the images presented to the mind by the visible arrangements for sepulture are inseparably associated with the ideas of death itself to the greater proportion of the population, end quote, and that the neglected or mismanaged burial grounds common in British cities 
superadd to the indefinite terrors of dissolution, associations of desecration and insult, he's not merely falling back on loosely defined psychological termin terminology, which was voguish at the time, but he's advancing an informed theory about how ill-kempt graveyards affect psychological transformations on those who live in the closest proximity to them. It's in this, Chadwick argues, that, quote, the crowded state of the places of burial in Britain's cities pollute the mental associations of the population. Most critical interest in burial reform has focused on the body rather than the mind with good reason. Um, and Chadwick focuses on, with appalled fascination, on the dangers of allowing um, living and dead bodies to mingle. He was a, a convinced miasmatist who believed that infectious agents were communicated from the dead to the living as vapour, um, and either um, inhaled uh, through the, uh, through the nose and the mouth, or, or they could seep through into the water <clears throat> And his report describes how the air is infected by particles of decomposing matter, which produce fevers among those who are exposed to it. And he backs this up with, with innumerable examples. Um, so he's obsessed with the body, yet Chadwick believed that the threat from the dead was not simply physical. And his analysis also draws on both moral and psychological discourses, while remaining primarily grounded medical and scientific modes of thought. Indeed, in one manuscript note, and his, his archive is over in um, UCL, <clears throat> in a manuscript note titled Interment in Towns, Memoranda of the Chief Heads, this was a, a note that he prepared for himself um, while writing his, his um, uh, supplementary report on interment. Chadwick writes that the chief grounds for burial reform are moral and psychological. He thus relegates the physical damage caused by exposure to decomposing matter to a matter of um, secondary importance. It's the moral and psychological issue that Chadwick is primarily interested in. <clears throat> um, Chadwick goes into much more detail about precisely how the type of damaging thoughts um, of death that he wants to reform are constructed than do the advocates of garden cemeteries, who after all have a product to sell. He suggests that prolonged exposure to dead bodies is the root cause of these mental wounds, and he identifies three locations where this exposure could currently take place in the Victorian city, the home, the street, and the burial ground. <clears throat> the, the garden cemetery advocates only, of course, focus on the burial ground, but Chadwick brings this discourse and this analysis right into the homes, particularly of the poorest in society. And he points out that, that um, Four out of five families of the labouring classes have each but one room in their house, and the corpses were often retained in this one common living space for upwards of a week while the money tried to raise enough money to bury the dead. The living thus ate, slept, and socialised uh, in a room containing a decomposing corpse. And this is at a time, obviously, when families are um, uh, much larger than today, and uh, uh, Chadwick's particularly exercised about the, the, the psychological effect of children being exposed um, to the sight of a dead body. <clears throat> According to the miasmatic theory of disease transmission, this close cohabitation with the dead posed a serious threat to the physical health of the living. And indeed, Chadwick devotes 10 pages of his report to tracing out the deadly effects of retaining corpses for so long in cramped dwellings. Yet despite the threat of such fatal consequences, he once again claims that the greatest dangers are not to the body but to the mind. Great, he says, as may be the physical evils, the evidence of the mental pain and moral evil generally attendant on the practice of the long retention of the body is yet more deplorable. The problem, he claims, is one of sensory perception and can be traced to the fact that the dead body, this is Chadwick again, the dead body is never absent from their sight 
eating, drinking or sleeping. End quote. Such prolonged exposure to the sight of a dead body risks making death seem commonplace to the poor and thus promotes a, a flippant attitude to life, Chadwick argues, which helps explain, quote, the habits of savage brutality and carelessness of life found amongst the labouring population. <coughs> Chadwick's solution to the problem was uh, more radical than that proposed by the Garden Cemetery enthusiasts. Firstly, the dead body should be removed from the home more quickly um, and the state should um, assume the power to compel people to give over dead bodies within, I think it was 24 hours, um, uh, which is kind of an astonishing suggestion, uh, I think. <clears throat> um, secondly, funeral processions, funeral processions with their gloomy associations and constant obtrusion of the dead onto the visual field of the living, and, and particularly in crowded parts of the city, these should be removed from London streets, Chadwick suggests, and the dead should henceforth be transported to the grave either by rail or in barges on what he called the Great Silent Highway of the Thames. Finally, these funeral boats or funeral trains would shuttle the dead down river to the first in a new network of vast nationalised cemeteries, which would be much less ornate than those established at Kensal Green and Highgate, but would run along similar aesthetic guidelines. Um, crucially, they wouldn't be run for profit, which was one of Chadwick's big bugbears with the garden's entrance. <clears throat> if Chadwick had his way, the dead would have virtually no presence in Britain's cities. All, in, uh, all urban places of burial would be closed. <clears throat> they would thus be removed from the site of the living, minimising any risk of any harmful sensory encounters between the living and the dead. And Chadwick hoped that this would, quote, abate the mental suffering of the poor and extend to the depressed urban district and urban districts <clears throat> an acceptable and benign and elevating influence. Once again, instituting better thoughts of death was seen as the key to promoting a healthier and more moral society. Dickens would have known these arguments well. Uh, after all, he buried Mary Hogarth in Kensal Green Cemetery, one of the new garden cemeteries, in 1837, and had made it known to his friends and family, uh, to some of their disquiet, I think, that he intended to be buried next to her. The cemetery was beautiful, he wrote, the grass as green and the flowers as bright as if nothing of the earth in which they grew could ever wither or fade. <clears throat> Moreover, in the years immediately before, during and after Dickens wrote The Old Curiosity Shop, London became ringed, encircled by similar commercial enterprises each carefully landscaped and superintended to ensure that visitors came away with only positive associations with death. Um, the Magnificent Seven, as they're now known, the seven cemeteries, garden cemeteries which ring London, were all established. Kensal Green opens in 1833, but most of them open in 18, between 1839 and 1841, and Dickens publishes the old curiosity shop in 1840 and 1841. So this was very much a current um, uh, concern um, at the time Dickens was writing. <clears throat> the rise of the Garden Cemetery and the wider burial reform movement in the 1830s and 1840s, um, I would like to suggest, offers an analogue for Dickens's scheme to instil better thoughts of death in the young through the careful management of their early associations with death. <clears throat> and yet, these sanitary and burial reformers were primarily concerned with managing sense data gathered from the visual field while Dickens argues for the association-making and association-reforming power of textual consumption, quite different concern. And as I turn towards the, um, the second half of this talk, I'd like to introduce 
um, one other 19th century discourse in which the power of associationist ideas to affect social change was widely touted, and that's education. Here we find precisely the sort of textual and linguistic representations that were Dickens's stock and trade, forming the basis of discussions about how to institute better thoughts of death in the young. <clears throat> it's easy, I think, to discern why educationalists were excited by the widespread acceptance of associationist theories in the early decades of the 19th century. Association psychology privileges childhood as the crucial period in which the associations that determine an individual's habits of thought for the rest of his or her life are formed. The child's mind remembers a tabula rasa, according to most associationist theories. Um, careful monitoring of the trains of thought that a child forms in his or her early years could therefore help eliminate all sorts of moral failings and promote mental processes which were likely to lead to both personal happiness and social utility. <clears throat> what resulted was, as Elizabeth Gargano has recently argued, an attempt to institute a new form quote, of scientific a new form of scientific pedagogy that might radically reshape Victorian childhood. The most influential description of this new associationist mode of teaching can be found in James Mill's 1815 Encyclopaedia Britannica entry on education. Mill argues that a child's happiness can best be promoted by educating them in a system that, quote, works on the mental successions, and thus makes certain feelings or thoughts take place instead of others. A teacher's primary responsibility, Mill argues, is to ensure that harmful thoughts and feelings are avoided. If they are already present in the child's mind, <clears throat> however, then they must quickly be supplanted by ideas that are calculated to have more personal and social utility. Worse thoughts, in other words, should quickly be replaced by better ones. <clears throat> um, the turn of the century, uh, Mill wasn't the first to, to come up with this approach to education, um, uh, and I particularly like the work of the turn of the century um, educational writer Elizabeth Hamilton, um, much more conservative in her outlook than Mill. Um, <clears throat> and Hamilton believed that children learn, quote, by means of early and powerful associations through which their desires and aversions are principally uh, excited. She's interesting to me um, tonight, at least, principally because she identifies death as one crucial area in which a dutiful parent should seek to influence the formation of their child's train of ideas, as she calls it. <clears throat> if we analyse the slavish fear of death, which constitutes no trifling portion of human misery, we shall often find it impossible to be accounted for on any other grounds than those of early association. Frequently does this slavish fear operate in the bosoms of those who know not the pangs of an accusing conscience. But in vain does reason and religion speak peace to the soul of him whose first ideas of death have been accompanied with strong impressions of terror. The association thus formed is too powerful to be broken. Hamilton sees the fear of death as a source of religious doubt and vacillation in adults, <clears throat> and thus as a route to moral weakness um, and wrong behaviour. <clears throat> Unlike the burial reformers who come later in the century, Hamilton recognises, however, that a child's formative experiences of death and the dead are not limited to encounters with visual data, with graveyards, tombstones, funerals and corpses, all the things that Edward Chadwick would try and expel from the city. <clears throat> Hamilton, um, because her focus is much more domestic, realises um, that, that early encounters with ideas of death are more commonly mediated through textual and linguistic representations of mortality. She argues, therefore, that greater care needs to be taken over such representations. 
Because if a child's first impression of death is accompanied by what she calls injudicious language, um, or, uh, then the idea of death will become, quote, associated with all the images of horror that the imagination could conceive. In, for Hamilton, in fact, um, uh, the linguistic comes before the imaginative, one, one um, initiates the other. <clears throat> Children should therefore only be given access to those texts which are calculated to make the idea of death and the dead, quote, not only familiar but pleasant. The question of which text to choose, however, is neither answered, uh, sorry, is neither asked nor answered by Hamilton, whose own logic suggests that there was a dearth of material with which the topic might be introduced to young, young children in this much more benign way that she proposes. <clears throat> Another turn of the century educational theorist with associationist ideas, a man named William Burden, <clears throat> sought to provide parents and teachers with a source of psychologically useful texts in his 1805 anthology of verse, Poetry for Children. Like both Hamilton and Mill, Burden argues that those charged with the child's education must pay, quote, early and constant attention, end quote, both to the sense impressions the child receives and the ideas that they might associate with. The poems collected in his anthology therefore range widely over various aspects of early years experience and have been selected, as he explains in the anthology's preface, <clears throat> to help form the minds of children to humanity and benevolence and contribute to their general improvement. Um, this is the, um, I don't have time to go into it, but this is, this is um, the 1805 is the direct result of his writings on education a few years earlier where he bemoaned the absence of such texts. <clears throat> sure enough, one of the poems in Burton's collection does touch explicitly, um, only one, upon the subject of death in what he presumably deemed to have been a psychologically improving manner. The poem in question is Wordsworth's We Are Seven, which, you'll recall, was the poem that John Carey cites as the foolish verses which had horribly corroded Dickens' intelligence while he was writing The Old Curiosity Show. Um, so, to bring us back towards Dickens' novel a little bit then, um, I'm going to try and do so by way of, of Wordsworth's poem. And by um, touching on its um, popularity in the Victorian, in the early 19th century schoolroom. Um, and its wholesale adoption, really, by, um, as a, a, a recital piece by um, early 19th century educationalist teachers and parents. Um, all of whom seem to have seen We Are Seven as a suitable means of teaching children about death in an era that was deeply concerned about the susceptibility of the child's mind to these harmful mental associations. <clears throat> we Are Seven had originally been published in the 1798 edition of Lyrical Ballad and was still relatively unknown, actually obs fairly obscure, when Bird republished it in his um, anthology of children's verse seven years later. It was the first anthologization of the poem. For those who don't know it, um, or have forgotten it, the poem recounts a dialogue between an educated child and an uneducated cottage girl concerning the size of her family, written in the, the prelude to the 1801 census. <clears throat> Two of her siblings are dead, she tells him, but despite their absence, the girl refuses to discount them from, from her reckoning of the size of her family, and she insists that her family consists of seven people, while the stranger tries unsuccessfully to convince her that death is a separation and that her family consists only of five. The girl insistently defies the stranger's rationalist assertions that death 
equal separation by asserting that she lives in close communion with her dead siblings. And uh, this might be slightly difficult to see, but this is, um, uh, I've chosen this edition of the, of the poem for a particular reason. Um, <clears throat> and uh, this is her assertion of, of how she knows that the, um, her dead siblings remain part of the family. Their graves are green, they may be seen, the little maid replied. Twelve steps or more from my mother's door, and they lay side by side. My stockings there I often knit, my kerchief there I hem, and there upon the ground I sit, I sit and sing to them. And often after sunset, sir, when it is light and fair, I take my little porringer and eat my supper there. Um, the child seems to have an innate sense of connection to the dead, which enables her to live with them in harmony in a way which is um, impossible for this rationalist outside observer who interrogates her. There are no, quote, horrors of the tomb. Dickens's phrase um, here that might form harmful associations with death, associations <laughs> with death in the minds of Burden's childish readers. Now, this isn't actually Burden's edition. This is a chapbook edition, a child's chapbook edition of the poem, which was um, published later um, with woodcuts. Um, but the fact that it was being circulated, I think, as a, a poem for children is, um, is a culturally interesting moment. It certainly wasn't written as a, a poem for children, even if it's sing-song, nursery rhyme, diction, um, lends itself to, to, to sort of childish uh, recitation. <clears throat> There are no horrors of the tomb here, but rather a sense of calm acceptance of death and burial and a familiarity with the grave that defies all gothicizing and superstitious impulses. It's a poem in which the normal circuits of pedagogical exchange are reversed. Instead of the worldly adult teaching the naive child about death, it's the innocent child whose voice rings out in the poem's final line as she maintains to the end her belief that her family's dead remain part of the family, much to the adult's consternation. <clears throat> this proved to be the first of many anthologizations of We Are Seven in the 19th century. I've, I've found it in, in roughly 50 different anthologies of children's verse um, in the first, oh, transatlantically, um, in the first sort of, between, between about 1820 and about 1870. <clears throat> Indeed, it proved to be a staple of collections of verse for children, where it took its place amongst other exhortatory and educational poems that were designed to shape the moral and spiritual character of Britain's youth. Poems such as Try Again, <clears throat> with its famous If at first you don't succeed, try, try again, moral, Our senses may deceive us, learn to spell, self-denial. These are the, the sorts of, of titles of poems that we are, that, that Wordsworth's radical experimental ballad found itself nestled up against in these um, uh, associationist um, collections of poetry. <clears throat> Um, that was just in, in one book, those, those um, poems, the National Reading Books, of, uh, adapted to the Government Code of 1867. In many of these collections, it's actually the only poem which dwells on issues of mortality. In others, it's accompanied by other poems which seem to have more or less wholesale copied what was obviously a very successful formula. Um, there's one called um, Annie, Annie Playing Among the Graveyards, which is, is virtually a rewrite by... Um, Caroline Gilman, who I think was Charlotte Perkins Gilman's <clears throat> While Try Again taught Victorian children how to react to both failure and perseverance, we are said and taught them how to think about death and the dead. The ironies begin to pile up when we consider the various ways in which this history of anthologization complicates the poem's own reversal of the normal circuits of pedagogic exchange. Here we see adults seeking to teach children about death by using a poem which claimed that such knowledge really ought to flow in the other direction. 
It's a poem that celebrates a child's resistance to a rationalist educator, who's now being enthusiastically taught by rationalist educators. And its depiction of a child with innate knowledge of death is was being championed by educationalists such as Burden, who denied that any such innate knowledge could exist. <clears throat> um, it thus occupies a, an interesting and paradoxical position. And I want to begin my concluding remarks, such as they are, by suggesting that John Carey, um, in, that, in that first uh, early quote, was, was probably right to identify the, the sportive rural infants of uh, the old curiosity shop. <clears throat> who are seemingly as comfortable hugging a grave as the sibling whose absence it signifies, he's right to identify these as descendants of the simple child of Wordsworth's We Are Seven. When little Nell reaches the village where she'll die, she finds that her new neighbours stroll, socialise and play in the churchyard, and that they refuse to associate its burial mounds with either horror or disgust. The boys claim that his brother's burial plot is not a grave, but, quote, a garden, and one that was greener than all the other gardens, echoes the words worthy in child's insistence, both that the verdancy of her own siblings' plots is significant, their graves are green, they may be seen, <clears throat> and, that, um, in this, and that the graves have more functions than this ignorant newcomer to her village is able to comprehend. Um, this is pure Wordsworth. Convinced by the claims of association psychology, Dickens wanted his novel to contribute to the reforms in the representation of death that were taking place in all around London in the New Garden Cemeteries. And he found a model of how that might be done in We Are Seven, a poem that was familiar to those of Dickens' generation, precisely because it had been championed by educationalists such as Burden, who used it as a means of forming positive associations with death in the minds of generations of children. Dickens clearly gathered the flowers for his fresh garland from an old and familiar garden. Yet, I would argue that he does at least manage to weave them into a wholly new pattern. And in the process, he reverses the direction in which, according to Wordsworth, knowledge about how we ought to think about the dead flows between adult and child. Where Wordsworth's cottage girl possesses an unshakable belief that the dead can be counted as members of the community, which eventually causes the poem's adult speaker to question his own beliefs, Nell vacillates in the old curiosity shop between a number of different positions until she's told what to think by her friend the schoolmaster. Thinking about the dead is too important a topic too left to the child's imagination, Dickens suggests. It's a topic that requires adult guidance and intervention. <clears throat> Indeed, Nell understands that such an education needs to take place. As we can see when she corrects the schoolmaster's suggestion <clears throat> that the village, an ancient house, into which Nell and her grandfather moved will be, a, a, quote, a peaceful place to live in. Oh yes, rejoined the child, clasping her hands earnestly, a quiet, happy place, a place to live and learn to die in. Nell's death is not in itself didactic. As Sarah Winter has pointed out, Dickens implicitly rejects the pedagogical potential of the death itself, a, a facet of um, mid-century evangelicalism, by omitting the deathbed scene from the novel entirely. Nevertheless, Dickens re represents didacticism in action in this passage. Um, uh, the, the culminating passage, really, of, of the novel's engagement with death, um, which has subsequently become known as the schoolmaster's consolation. <clears throat> I do rather grieve to think, said the child, bursting into tears, that I should a brief bit of contextualization. This is, comes after Nell has been looking at graves in the graveyard, which are untended and she um, recognises that the dead are forgotten. So you have this, um, within the, the, 
narrative of the novel itself, you had this negative association being formed through um, Nell's visual encounter with um, an unkempt grave. <clears throat> I do rather grieve to think, said the child, bursting into tears, that those who die about us are so soon forgotten. And do you think, said the schoolmaster, there are no deeds far away from here in which these dead may be best remembered? Now, now, there may be busy people in the world at this instant in whose good actions and good thoughts these very graves, neglected as they look to us, are the chief instruments. There is nothing, cried her friend, no, nothing innocent or good that dies and is forgotten. Let us hold to that faith in none. <clears throat> Nell reads the untended graves in the churchyard as evidence that death means first separation and then soon afterwards oblivion. It's the task of the schoolmaster. His, his occupation, I think, is, is significant here, among others in the village, to convince her that this is not the case, that the dead live on in the memories and good actions of the living, that the gravesite is not the sole nexus of community between the living and the dead, and that to die is not to be forgotten. He does this by ascribing the churchyard's poor condition to the absence of those who ought to keep the graves maintained. Not only are they no longer living in the village, being somewhere, quote, far away from here in the world, but they're also busy people. Too busy, it seems, to demonstrate the remembrance of the dead by tending to their final resting place. <clears throat> um, their absence and their busyness, I think, are both functions of, of um, 19th century uh, modernity, if you like, or, or um, the shift in the 19th century economy, which, which begin to necessitate new modes of thinking about the dead. Yet these busy people belie their apparent dislocation from the dead by constructing different methods of remembrance, in the schoolmaster's account at least, which are more practical and immediate, consisting merely of, quote, good actions and good thoughts, which, we must assume, serve to ameliorate the harsh social conditions and widespread cruelty that Dickens represents elsewhere in the novel. It's a doctrine that offers considerable latitude to Victorian mourners, removing from any of the more onerous and time-consuming rites by which the living had traditionally called the dead to mind. It was now enough for the schoolmaster, and perhaps for Dickens as well, merely to think about the dead and to allow those thoughts to influence action for the better, an internalisation of the notion of duty which was perfectly suited to an era in which demands on time were rising and traditional communities were becoming um, much more widely dispersed and fluid in nature. Nevertheless, the schoolmaster does successfully replace Nell's association of these graves um, with oblivion and establishes an alternative interpretation of their neglect which links the dead back to society through the good works supposedly done in their name. This pattern is repeated again and again in the novel. Um, where Nell receives an education from the adult world. And if this is a text which is influenced by We Are Seven, it's one um, which reflects perhaps a, 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 the effects of a generation of We Are Seven's influence. Um, <clears throat> where Wordsworth had asserted in We Are Seven that um, urban dwellers and, and people who um, dealt only in um, rationalist approaches to um, questions of mortality had something to learn from um, a rural child uh, <clears throat> and a childish view of death. Dickens depicts a society in which um, adults have to reinforce the words worthy in view um, and teach it to children. Um, far from being innate in now um, the words worthy in approach to mortality, which is depicted in VR7, 
um, is something which is advanced by the adults in the village and, and drummed into her. Dickens claims to have had two aims in writing the death of Lucy Nell. <clears throat> Softening the, heart, the grieving hearts of his older readers and providing his younger readers with pleasant images of death to replace the gloomy and psychologically damaging representations that prevailed in the early Victorian culture. The first of these aims, the softening of the grieving hearts of his older readers, has frequently been discussed by critics who are interested in the novel's fluctuating affective power, including Nicola, actually, which was once great enough to provoke tears in innumerable readers, but is now in an era less tolerant of sentimentalism, less readily apparent. The other, however, has largely been ignored. Wrongly, I would suggest, as a focus on um, how Dickens sought to influence younger readers through his novel, opens the door to discussion of um, self-consciousness in Victorian discourses of sentimentality and the ways in which um, Victorian novels, novelists were beginning to feel themselves participants and figure themselves as participants in wider reformist and socially improving projects. I began this talk by pointing out that Little Nell's death has typically served to demarcate the aesthetic choices of different generations. What I hope to have shown um, in the last 40 minutes or so is that its usefulness in this respect springs from its own rejection of its fictional and aesthetic inheritance, <clears throat> its self-conscious attempt to sever itself from tradition. The novel's sentimentalism is indeed a function of the novel's experimentalism, an attempt to allow those with better thoughts to produce, in the end, a better society. Thank you.